Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, I'm joined by technology and scale-up advisor and early-stage investor Andrew Sharp to talk about selling without a product. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the Startup Rundown for Thursday, the 23rd of November. Well, the tech story of the moment, of course, is the ongoing saga of upheaval at OpenAI, with leadership and board changes in such a rapid state of flux that we won't even try to give you an update. We'll just wait for the Netflix series, where we assume that all the roles will be played by AI actors or Tilda Swinton. While OpenAI debates whether or not the advancement of AI is being handled in a responsible manner, Meta has axed yet another of its branches focused on technical responsibility. Startup Daily reports that a year after scrapping its responsible innovation branch, the story broke on Monday that Meta's responsible AI team had also been disbanded, with its members split up amongst other teams. Following the news, Meta has reaffirmed its commitment to responsible AI development and its pillars of accountability, transparency, safety, and privacy. The announcement comes after a large-scale restructuring of the team earlier this year. At the time, a Business Insider report called it a shell of a team lacking autonomy, and I guess now they don't even have a shell. In more news that is unlikely to make us feel good about humans, the investigation into cryptocurrency trading platform Binance has finally come to a conclusion, with the company and CEO pleading guilty to U.S. federal charges. According to TechCrunch, Chengpeng Zhao has stepped down as CEO of the company after appearing before the Department of Justice to plead guilty to charges of anti-money laundering, unlicensed money transmitting, and sanctions violations on Tuesday. Binance has also agreed to pay $4.3 billion in fines as a result of the investigation. The company has vowed to maintain and enhance its compliance program and has appointed Richard Tang, their former global head of regional markets, as their new CEO. Is this a new beginning for the controversial exchange and the crypto space overall? I, no comment. In local news, where are all the salespeople? That's the question this Aussie startup founder is asking, referencing a reportedly growing supply-demand gap in sales talent for startups and the wider tech industry. The Sydney Morning Herald reports that Early Work Academy, a startup specializing in micro-courses for the tech industry, aims to help close this gap by training students in industry skills that they may not be able to acquire in the traditional university system. Founder Dan Brockwell stated that despite societal stigma around sales jobs, the role of the salesperson is a highly specialized and potentially very rewarding job. Early Work's current upscaling is consistent with a broader shift towards micro-courses in Australia, with the Australian government and many universities noticing the growing preference for short, intensive courses among modern students. And finally, Black Friday is right around the corner, and during a time where consumerism and obsession with the newest, shiniest things reign supreme, this Sydney-based startup is trying to think sustainably. Smart Company reports that Citizen Wolf, a fashion label focused on conscious and sustainable fashion, is offering their consumers an affordable black overdye of their old garments 
in a bid to keep them out of landfill. Black Fry Dye, as the company calls it, intends to disrupt the endless and mindless back-to-back sales events that November has become, according to Citizen Wolf co-founder Zoltan Shaki. With an estimated 80% of garments sold during the Black Friday slash Cyber Monday period being worn only once, this kind of initiative could be what the fashion industry and the environment desperately needs. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. of a product do you need before you start selling? Some startups spend too long in the development phase without testing the waters of the market, while some overpromise and underdeliver, if at all. How do you strike the balance? To help me unpack this, I'm joined by Andrew Sharp. Andrew boasts over 22 years in the tech industry, including roles as a bootstrap founder and leadership positions in product, technology, and commercial sectors within six scale-ups. He often calls himself the executive garbage collector as he seeks to solve problems facing high-growth companies, typically in product market fit and go-to-market strategies. He has played diverse roles from sales to evangelist across sectors like edtech, regtech, fintech, generative AI, and consumer storage. His expertise extends to launching B2B and B2C products and services, impacting millions of users globally. And just to note, the audio for this interview is not perfect, but it is such a great conversation. We wanted to bring it to you anyway, and we'll do better next time. Andrew, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thanks for having me, Scotty. So we call this selling without a product. How is that not vaporware? Like, we don't want to end up in jail. So how do we sell without a product while still being ethical? Well... Look, I think I think there's there's two elements there. So one is how do you sell period? And then secondly is what are you actually selling and 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 promising? And I think they're they're bothly they're both quite aligned. But effectively what you're actually doing when you're selling is you are out there asking someone to hand over money for a service or a delivery. And you know, yes, you have a, a large amount of people who will only buy if they can touch and feel something. But like with most consulting professional services, even if you think about you know, your medical work, when you go to a doctor, you're going there with a set of ailments. You're going there with a set of pain points and you're asking for their opinion that you can't actually test whether they're going to give it to you, you're saying I'm going to them for their advice or I'm going them for a future state delivery. Mm. And to a certain extent, that's what you're doing when you're selling any product is you're in many cases selling the promise of a delivery as opposed to just actually a you know, a box. Now, obviously, not like buying a car. When you're out there buying a car, you have to touch it, you have to feel it. But even when you're buying a car, for example, today, you don't, you rarely will go in there and touch and feel something on the lot. You actually go on to the online configurator and you pick a color and a cloth trim. And in many cases, the, the level of complexity when you're buying a car means that you can't actually touch and feel everything in the dealership when you're actually ticking all the boxes. So I would argue, how is that any different from selling a future delivery? Now, yes, it's slightly different when you're in a in a, in a startup phase and you may not have a working product, but there is nothing around being able to say, to sell, to say, 
this is my vision. This is the problem I'm going to solve. This is how I'm going to solve it. Will you be willing to fund, effectively fund me or pay me for that service if I am able to deliver it? So we're not actually saying mm. have money up front or you know, on the promise. What we are actually saying is uh, if I am able to deliver this, will you buy it? Mm-hmm. I see a lot of both extremes of this from people that are selling stuff that they are not confident that they can make to people that spend a long time building something to try and get it just right before they show it to anyone. So how do we strike that balance of selling a vision, but ensuring that we aren't over-promising on a product that is still in development? I actually flip that around and go, well, a great product-led company is going to be customer-focused. So part of this is is when you get that commitment to say, will you buy it? And somebody says, yes, I would absolutely like to buy it. And then you go, well, what are the conditions? What is the minimum for you to begin paying me if I deliver this? And you get a list of requirements from your customer that actually in, in almost every respect will mean A, you're customer driven, but B, give you a finite list of deliverables that you need to create a delivery around. And I think going back to what you were saying around, you know, how much do you have to iterate to prove that you can do this? If you're iterating without kind of a end delivery point, you can end up delivering, why am I putting this in? Why am I putting that in or not? You have actually, you know, you may find that what you believe were the five features that were necessary are only two of those are actually necessary for a customer to pay you, but there are another three that they want. And it becomes less of a an issue around validating that on a market basis. Say, well, I've got one customer that's willing to pay me, right? I'm going to take that money. That's going to help me fund my startup. And I know we're going to get to talking about funding options. And then, yep. and then you've got to go and test, okay, does every other customer want this same set of features or are there other features that they want? And then that's how you effectively evolve your product is based off customer demand, but on the basis that they will actually pay you once you deliver what it is that you're promising. It's a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? That where I think people either fall on the, I've got to have something amazing before I show anybody versus the confidence, I guess, to be able to have those conversations without having all of your boxes ticked. And when we're talking about bootstrapping, there are limitations on the amount of time and money that you can put into that testing. So how do bootstrapping startups validate an idea through pre-sales consulting with uh, breaking the, the bank and, and try that balance of this doesn't really exist yet, but we'll make it if you pay? Well, I think there are two things in relation to this. The first is being a bootstrap startup, you know, do you need to productize or can you actually consult? That's the first thing we should touch on. I think the second element of, of it ultimately is, is when you are bootstrapping and, and, and kind of even as, as good sales hygiene, you, know, you shouldn't be challenged. You should not be having to go into a challenge of sales kind of construct as a bootstrap. You should be going into a consultative and, and needs-based selling. Um, 
in in. Can you define what that means? Sorry, the challenger. Yeah. Okay, so I'll touch on that one, and then we'll come back to the, the other one. Um, so <laughs> there's effectively two. There's there's a, there's a whole. I mean, there's, there's a lot of literature literature around, especially this is to do with enterprise sales. But uh, effectively, there's two really kind of key differential ways to sell. One is needs based selling, and the other is a version of challenger based kind of selling. And overall, when you start to think about the the, the, the human biases and heuristics around these two types. There's really only one way to ever sell, and that's needs-based. And what needs-based is is when you actually go into a customer and you ask them, you, it's, it's very much a consultative asking question-based way of selling. So, you know, Scotty, you know, tell me a little bit about what is your situation? What are you, who are you? What are you trying to do? How do you make money? What does it look like? Okay, great. And if we're focusing on one area that we happen to care about, what are your challenges at the moment? What could you be doing better in that area? Are you actually doing you know, the best you can? Are there, is there pain, you know, genuine pain in you, you don't want to be doing a repetitive task or actually this is a big roadblock for us. I'd love for this to be unlocked or I know there's value there. I just can't reach it because of X and Y. And then you go, ah. Okay, let me understand those pain points. Great. Well, you know, that's the empathetic bit of that. I, I can understand that. So if we were able to, sell, to solve that, and this is kind of how we could sell, solve that, would that then meet your needs? And you know, through this process, you're actually effectively hacking the human and some of their behavioral insights because they're taking ownership of the entire sales process. It feels like they're coming up with the, the solution. You're not you're not putting it out there as a solution. And so that that's kind of a, you know, as a way of selling is a very strong way of selling. And it's it's pretty much the best way to do it because ultimately as a startup, you're looking to differentiate yourself from everything in the market and you're not coming to them with the, the challenger-based selling, which is a challenger-based selling is, is to come in and go, uh, you know, Scotty, you're in this area, you're probably using this system or this process to do this. And you know what? That's what I'm seeking to solve because that's broken. It sucks. Why would you do it that way? Why wouldn't you do it my way? <laughs> and yeah. what what challenger-based selling pretty much does is it will convince the the potential customer or the opportunity that they are doing the wrong thing, but they're not going to buy from the person who's told them that it's the wrong thing. They'll actually go and go, oh yeah. You're right. I should probably fix that, but I'm not going to buy from Andrew because he just told me what an idiot I was. You know, I'm going to go and find somebody like Andrew who can solve that problem and I'm going to go down that path. And that's kind of that challenger versus, uh, you know, need that challenger versus needs based selling construct. And, you know, so if one takeaway, you know, look up around needs based selling as, as a framework called Spiced, which is, I think, good framework to help you go down that need-based consultative selling style and it sounds there's, good. A, there's a whole LinkedIn post I've done on this on the on the heuristics and behavioral economics of and these biases and how you know that that needs-based selling and spice-based framework actually hacks your buyer effectively and so that that's a, a really okay. way ethically ethically <laughs> um, I think the, the other thing just to touch on 
and going back to, I think there's something you, you kind of reference, which is are you selling a service or are you selling a product, and especially for the bootstrap founder and very specifically selling to enterprise. Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of companies that say, well, we want to change, we sell a service. That service might be helping companies take data, put it into a spreadsheet, and then actually, you know, build out macros in a spreadsheet to help them do better decisioning. And they'll go, well, we want to actually turn this into a product. So we're going to go away and try and turn our spreadsheet into a product and then create a new channel to market and try and sell that. And there is absolutely nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, you're probably going to iterate a product faster if you were to go to a customer and say, yes, I want to solve this problem and my two to three year goal is to give this to you as an all singing, all dancing product that you can embed in your enterprise software that's going to do it. But the first thing I'm going to sell mm. to you is I want to sell this to you as a service where you're going to leverage my expertise in this area and you know, the outcomes you are going to get is a dynamic pricing model. That dynamic <clears> pricing <throat> model, mm. you, you shouldn't care whether that's going to be delivered in a node outcome hosted in Azure or a spreadsheet that you know, I'm dynamically creating and iterating on, you know, on my desktop to give you the answer. If it's going to give you the answer that you need in the time frame that you want it, then excellent. You should be paying me for that. And you should be paying me for that for the value that I'm creating, not for uh, the cost that it's that of my time and, and my technology. And there are a number of examples over time, especially in the enterprise space, where starting on that model, iterating just on a spreadsheet, which is the world's, you know, Excel is the world's largest ERP by a long way. Uh, using that, mm -hmm. delivering that, getting customer delivery, getting that customer value, and then actually building, saying, right, we want to take this manual process that I'm doing and spreadsheet and turning that into a product, a technology product is actually, there's nothing wrong with that as a pathway to delivering a product. But more importantly, it's mm. funded, you're getting the value delivered. And again, you have a defined build against. You're not just building this on the, oh, will, 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 will this process work? Will this bell and whistle be required for my MVP? You've actually got an MVP already, just happens to be your time and a spreadsheet. Mm. Can we actually turn that into a product? Mm. I, I've been on a journey with a couple of different um, clients recently illustrating exactly what you just said, where their their secret sauce has been data that they understand and have access to and have learned how to manipulate. And they have jumped straight to this has to be a, a product-led SaaS platform and let's go spend a lot of money on developing what that looks like only to find that actually what you've built doesn't add value because we haven't worked out what is it about the way that people want to access and use this data uh, that would make a platform necessary. And so step one has been then to scale back to how do we provide this data in a way that demonstrates our expertise that we can monetize but it might be more in a report form. It might be in an advice form. So starting with that service and then working out 
A, is does this need to be a platform at all? But if it does, what is that that is going to add value to it? And I think that that's that trap that we fall into in this space where we've developed, and I think particularly in Australia, we have this really binary view of like what a startup is now, you know, that it is like we've got to be building software, you've got to have a developer and people go away and do all of that. I've had two conversations in this week with people who've said, so our MVP, we've been working on it for a couple of years, it's 95% done, we need to start thinking about showing it to some people. And it's like, record scratch. Why haven't you been showing it to people already? Like, what if you show it to them when it's 95% done and they go, yeah, no, not like that. So how do we, but, but then I think the flip side is, and this is at least the next question, is like, how flexible should we be? I think, as you said, with that challenger model, some people come out and they're like, I've built this. This is the way to do it. You're doing it wrong. Do it my way. Buy this now. And if when we come out of the gate with that confirmation bias, you know, we, we hit some walls. But is there a risk of being too flexible about what the product direction is based on that pre-sales feedback? If I don't have anything to, to start with, am I just going to end up building something mushy? Well, if you're getting paid for it, no. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the short answer is is that that if 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 you are getting paid for it, by definition it's not mushy. By definition, it is there is value there. Now, if if there's a case where you know, there's kind of the outcome could be that you agreed to a contract, I've agreed to provide you a service that I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of let's 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 torture the Excel consulting kind of service <laughs> and I've agreed to deliver that to you for $5,000 a month, picking numbers out of the sky. Now, the worst case, what, what is the worst case scenario if a customer signs that contract? The worst case scenario in that basis is you've actually, del- you're delivering something where it's taking up all of your time to deliver that and that's not valuable for your time. That's the worst case scenario, but mm. you've proven out that you can actually do it once and you can then go and say, well, actually, this is taking up all of my time, well, hopefully not all of it, but enough time to say, now, what I need to do is I need to work out either, A, how can I optimize my processes and systems so that it's not taking up all of my time, or B, I need to go and speak to uh, 10 similar companies to see if I can sell the same thing or a similar thing to to do that and see I should be testing out how much you know, value I'm providing. So one of the things you might do, let's, let's run that tape and go, wow, I've delivered this service. They're paying me $5,000 a month, but it's taking up a huge amount of my time and I don't perceive it's valuable. Ring the customer up and go, hey, you like what you're getting? Yes. Is it important for you? Yes. Do you think you're getting a great deal at $5,000 a month? Probably, okay. You know what would you pay me? Because I've probably underscoped, and you'd be surprised. Like you know, they might you might be delivering a million dollars in value that they're willing to give one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year for, rather than the seventy two that that you originally quoted. And and that having that humility of of being able to do that, but you're coming from a position of revenue rather than I'm going to go away. I'm going to spend. I'm going to be negative. I'm going to spend a huge amount of, of of dollars in in development in my time without revenue, 
to get you to a point where you may not, you may or you may not actually pay me versus actually we have clear revenue coming in the door to, 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 to part fund that. No, I, I get that. So mushy, mushy is okay if there's money behind it. Well, mushy might end up being, you know, what you're thinking is mushy. That's, that's actually the problem the customer wants solved. That's, that's the value. value. That's right. If that's the value, yep, they, they, they find the value in that. And that's that piece. Like, you know, I, I like to use that from hair on fire problems. Of if we find the thing that it's no question about, yeah, we need to solve this. And the, then people will see the value in that. And it may be different from what you thought it was. And the number of ideas and products I've looked at where you, you get into it and realize you, the killer feature is actually buried in, in all of this. This is the thing that you're doing that pe- that isn't readily available, that people will find value in it. All the rest of this is kind of nice to have. So one way to do that in a way where you don't overcapitalize on development and marketing until you find that is through exactly what you're saying, that real, let's talk about what you need. And I'm... I'm constantly, no, I was going to say I'm constantly surprised by people not asking for enough feedback, but I think we all fall into those spaces where we're, we get some feedback, we get an idea, we're focused on delivering. And if we wait too long before we come up for air again, we realize, oh, I haven't been giving my finger on the pulse here. I've gone a little bit too far into my own silo and I've got to get back out. So when we think about this journey, what are some of the uh, common mistakes that you see that startups make in this validation or putting build before validation uh, stage? What, what are the common boo-boos? So the first one is, is and, and, and this is pretty much the only one, it's that they don't have good sales hygiene and they're not willing to accept the nobility of sale. And, and what do I mean by that is, when you're actually in this phase, if you're out there, you, you can approach. If I've got a, a new, you're my target market, Scotty, and I've got a new product that I'm seeking to sell to you, you can start the conversation to say, hey, I'm building this new company. I think there's a, a problem here and this is what I'm building. And I'd love your feedback as to what it is that I'm building. And, you know, that'd be great if you could give me your time around that. And you're setting up a, I know Scotty, he's a lovely bloke. He'll give me feedback. He'll go, oh, I don't like the color of that or I don't like where this button is placed or, oh, that looks really cool. I love what you're doing there. And you're getting effectively feedback on on what you've built, but you're missing the point around, am I actually delivering value? And it's a very different, Mm. very, very different basis if you walk into a meeting and say, hey, Scotty, I'm Andrew. I've got a startup. I think there's a problem in here and I want to solve that. And ultimately, I want to ask you for money for me to solve that because I can solve it better than what you and your company are doing today. And there is a nobleness in actually coming out and saying, I am going to sell you something. And and that's what I call there's a nobility in sales. I was doing some mentoring for a company, helping them around product market fit and their go-to-market sales process. They said, oh yeah, we've got this great. We really want to disarm them. So we ring, we ring up the customer 
the target and we go, look, we don't want to sell you anything. We just want to kind of demonstrate what it is we're building. And I said, stop right there. You know, selling is based on trust. There's a nobility in sales. And if the first thing that you come out of your mouth is effectively a lie, how are you Mm -hmm. going to build trust with your customer? How are you actually starting a positive relationship? And that's why I call there's a nobility in sales where people are aware they're being sold to and be open and say, I do want to sell to you. I think I can add value to your company. I want to discuss how I'm going to add value so that you're actually going to pay me at some point in the future. And as I keep on coming back to, there's a nobility in willing to position yourself in that way. And that's fundamentally going back to needs-based selling as well as part of it. But ultimately, startups have to recognize ultimately they are salespeople as much as they are product visionaries, as much as they're everything else that, that, you know, successful startups sell. That is either in a SaaS-based context, they sell to thousands of customers. In an enterprise context, they sell to a small number, but ultimately they're selling it. It's revenue that is financing the company. That's revenue that you're ultimately investing in to receive. So you have to be able to receive that revenue unless you're an advertising-based model. But most 90% of businesses out there are not advertising-based models. They're actually models that are based around selling and asking an individual customer or a corporation ultimately for money. Mm. That is really profound. I think in particularly as a product person, one thing that I really like about your approach to product is that you keep the commercialization side of it front and center, not in a greedy way, like, why are we doing this if we're not actually going to financially benefit from this if it's not going to sell? And I think that there's a comfort in tinkering and adding new features and playing with things as opposed to actually going out and selling that a lot of founders fall back into. It's that, oh, they didn't like it. Let's add a new feature. Maybe you don't like these. You never got, I don't want cars. Right, like, which so, you know, it's it's fine. You're a kid, and you just graciously accept, and and then you know, never play with them. But I think we do that a lot with products, where we made this thing, and then you're like, oh, you didn't like it like that. We'll add another feature, as opposed to no, that's just not what I want, or that's not solving the problem that I'm solving. One thing I think we need to touch on is the risk that is involved in this kind of selling, where you get yourself into a trap because you've overpromised, or you know given clients an expectation that you're going to be able to roll out something tomorrow that doesn't actually exist yet. So how do particularly these early stage startups uh, manage those risks and maintain credibility while they're going through this really consultative sales development? Let's just point out on this that we're not dealing with a large organization with a, a disparate sales team and a different development team. We're still dealing with a bootstrap startup where you have a founder that may have limited resources around them. And and fundamentally, I think there are uh, two elements here. The first one is, is if you are, and you know, most, most bootstraps founders are coming from experience in an industry where they've, they've been personally aware of something that hasn't been working and they've actually said, right, I need to go and solve this problem. 
So they will have a lot of context. And in many cases, they will be already thinking through from a business plan perspective what they can do to solve it. And you know, again, if it's if it's that, you know, yep, send me a an email with a data file every day and I'll go and put that into my special spreadsheet and turn that around and I'll get that back to you before 9 a.m. with the analysis. You are effectively de-risking yourself because you're saying, well, so long as I'm available to turn that around in whatever time period, you know what's required. Um, obviously, you know, you're absolutely right. There's the risk of, well, if I am actually promising to productize this, how am I going to do that? And I think that's, you know, fundamentally a you know, gratuitous plug here. The, the huge value of the product bus is to actually have a cohort of advisors who can help you actually understand that, break that down if you don't have that technical expertise to give you an idea around it. Because it's just as much risk going back to what we were touching on earlier around, oh, to be a uh startup you need to have a developer and they're going to be an engineer and they're going to do x and y you're actually making a, a, a huge risk that you're forcing yourself into that model you're forcing yourself into that as a those decisions as to what they're competent in or how they're going to solve the problem as opposed to actually having good product thinking which is let's work out what is the most expedient way for us to solve this problem how can we do this you know, can we be doing this rather than having to code up an outcome? Can we be using some low-code, no-code platforms? Can we be using some out-of-the-box functionality and technology that we can configure or white label yes. and deliver exactly the same value to the end customer that they're willing to pay for without a lot of the risk of having to develop your own solution? Mm. I think one of my analogies in this is that if you decide that you want to build a house, you don't just invite a builder to bring some stuff to your block of land and start riffing on what it you know might look like. You design, you, you plan first, you work out what is actually feasible. And I think that going straight to a developer, when particularly for a non-technical founder, but even you know someone who is a developer just started building before going through this process, it's dangerous because you're already locked into assumptions that you are making that you can test and challenge so much faster and with less expense and grief because the worst thing, and this is unfortunately a piece of what we do at Product Bus, is we just get to work with some fresh ideas where we're validating should this be a thing. That's really exciting. But then we also work with founders where they have put their trust and time and money into something and nine times out of ten, it's nothing to do with the 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 reputability of the developer. It is simply that it's not the developer's job to validate the business idea. They build try and work out the thing that you want and try and build it. And the less capable that you are of briefing a developer, the less likely it is that you're gonna, you know, hit the mark. And then they've sunk their money and particularly when we're talking bootstrapping here, you know, that they've had enough cash to be dangerous but not enough to just iterate on a unlimited budget. And so they've invested what they have in this thing that it may, it may not be something that can actually be turned around. 
And that that's the whole reason why Bridal Buzz exists is that we want to try and help people from getting to that point. So one of the things, like obviously you're talking about the role of the architect, which is to work with customer to come up with what is a ultimately a, a rendering of what the, the house, let's just keep it simple, would look like and different versions of the house. And once you sign off on that construct, you then go and do work around well, what does the foundations actually need to be. And in most cases, the foundations are poured in concrete and they're going to have electricity and plumbing embedded in that. And the most interesting thing is, is that the second that you have committed your foundations is the second that you're, you've actually mm-hmm. incurred significant cost. And if you haven't got the, the view right of what the house is going to look like, if you want to make a change to the house and you're going to have to change the foundations, you are in a massive world of pain because that is literally ripping up the concrete that's been poured, relaying the foundations, pouring it again. And you are going to create compromises and it is hugely expensive um, versus creating, you know, having really good blueprints done of what the house looks like and maybe various versions of that and ensuring that the foundations that you're building aren't poured in concrete, potentially, if possible, and also flexible to support multiple potential outcomes. And that's what great product thinking actually does is it ensures that when you are getting to a point where you are laying foundations because that is necessary at some point that it is a that it isn't going to cause you problems going forward and that it's going to be able to support potentially one or many different outcomes and therefore be far more sustainable for your business especially where you do have uh, precious resources when you're building those foundations mm-hmm. one thing that we often do in that circumstance where a client comes to us with an existing product is that we'll bring in a technical consultant just to do a really high level tech stack review. And in that instance, we'll say, look, we don't really care what it looks like right now. Like that's not, it's not about the, 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 the design It is really, we want to get to the foundations and understand how flexible and scalable this is, because I, I think we are getting into a better space now where there are fewer rogue you know i'll just code this from scratch people which by the way you should always run away from you know a, a million miles you know there are now more standard things like firebase that, that are a good starting point I, I know i've said this before on this show but it's like me with the mechanic i i can't assess what they're telling me you know uh, beyond do i trust this person does that sound reasonable but at the end of the day, you know, I've got to kind of take a punt at some point. And you've got to understand that's what you're doing when you go straight to a developer. Whereas if you do that kind of mapping out beforehand, then you can go to, you can shop that around once you've validated that you actually need to build. So now that's a really good extension of the, of the analogy. Let's go back to the nobility of sales thing, because I, one thing that really struck me about that was, I think, a constant struggle for early stage founders is embracing the fact that whether you like it or not right now, you are the salesperson and that you are, you are in the business of sales. And often people want to hide or sit behind like, oh, I don't want to be doing that. We want to build a product-led platform, etc. We're just going to launch this and people are going to sign up and it'll be just like Amazon, just like Uber, forgetting that Uber didn't start off as a product-led platform. 
Amazon didn't start off as a product-led platform. It was super manual at the beginning to validate. Well, I mean, Amazon you know, goes back further than we, than we think in terms of just mail order books. But Uber was, you call a number in San Francisco, say, I want to go somewhere and someone booked a black cab for you. So that having to kind of go through those steps, have those conversations, get commitments to those sales. And I feel like that's one reason why a lot of people fall back on chasing VC funding, even though they are not, they don't have the product or the profile that's ever going to get it. They keep adding features, doing new pitch decks, going to stuff, hoping for somebody to throw money at them rather than when they have something that can actually sell. And you said something a while ago that I love, which is, you know, we forget that there is another source of revenue, which is customers. And, you know, I, I've repeated that uh, you know, a lot. So, yeah, like, how, how do you step into that if you're not confident, if you feel, you know, like, I, I've got the idea, but I don't want to be up front. You know, how do you step into that role of sales when that's not your nature? If, I think it's pretty existential. If, if you can't sell your business, your idea, and you're unwilling to, to, to sit in front of customers and ask them for money, I would suggest going and finding another vocation besides being an entrepreneur. That's fair. Um, you know, I think in terms of, I mean, one of, one of the, the, the funniest things, and we're talking about, you know, revenue being uh, another source of funding besides VC and, and, and grants and all the rest of it, the, the interesting thing is that even if you're uh, going for VC funding, you're selling your company and selling ultimately yourself. So I think there's something really, you know, quite interesting about, you know, the, the fact that selling is part of your business, whether it's selling for funding or selling to customers. When you start to think about revenue as your other funding source, uh, you can spend just as much time selling to customers as you can to VCs. But if you sell to customers, A, you get 100% of the revenue. You're not having to share that with the VC. And B, you're actually building a more valuable business over time that when it comes to VC funding, they're going to, be, they're going to, to value you more highly. They're going to give you more for the work you've done, for the selling you've already done with customers. Um, mm. And I think that... The, the really, the fundamental thing about this is getting yourself out there. You will find that in the vast majority of cases, people are nice. People, if, especially if you have a, you know, a, a view of nobility of sales, if you're putting yourself out there as a entrepreneur and you're saying, Hey, I think I want to solve this problem, but I want to understand what problem you have and I want to see if I can actually add value to you. And most people will sit there and go, hey, I know that, you know, insert big brand name technology company isn't delivering what I know, what I wanted to, because that is almost exclusively enterprise technology at this point in time. So yeah, I'd love to give it a go to see if you can do something better for me. And most people will give you the time of day. Most people will actually engage with you. And to a certain extent, you might actually find it really rewarding. It meets the needs of demonstrating that you're customer focused and that they can trust you because you're building that trust by engaging with them. And fundamentally, going back to the nobility of sales, it's, it actually works in your favor. In most cases, when you start to have these conversations, they're actually hugely valuable. They're hugely empowering. 
in you know, even if you don't feel it's going to be working, in most cases you will have positive conversations. Mm. Mm. The other thing which is which is really interesting, which is, you know, and, and most people think selling is getting up and telling, you know, pitching how good your product is and that kind of stuff, which, you know, that's that's that challenger sales mindset and it's it's I, I think it's fundamentally broken. When you're actually in a need-based selling environment and you go down this path and you ask, you know, what is the problem that you have? Is this a, a, a significant pain point? Is it doesn't make sense for you to actually look at, at an alternative to, to provide value? And if at the end of that they actually say no you know, to the sale, so, you know, what is the first three rules in sales? Always ask for the sale, ask for the sale, ask for the sale. <laughs> and that, that's not and, – and getting another meeting is not a success. That's actually a very poor sales call. Mm, be, mm-hmm. If we deliver this, would you buy it? And if the answer is yes, and they go, well, great, I'm going to get something in front of you and let's codify this up and, and get an agreement in place. Or if it's no, you can always ask the question, why not? You really only start selling when you've heard the word no from a customer. And in, when you've heard no and they've, and they've gone, well, yeah, we really like what you've done and, yes, you're answering the problem, but my company won't allow us to spend money on this because of X and Y, okay, let's <laughs> work out how we get around that. You know, in, in every large company there is aspects. If you're selling to an individual, why wouldn't you sell it? Oh, well, I've already got a three-year agreement with somebody else. So if you're around in 18 months, then I've, I'll absolutely buy this off you in 18 months when, when, yeah. when, when that comes to you. Yeah. You find out what those know, what, what the conditions are and, and you actually then, that's when you actually start selling is when you're doing objection handling and you'll find out more about your product or your service or how to get remunerated by actually building out that objection handling and dealing with real paying customers or potential paying customers on when they've said no, you can actually find out more. Okay, you haven't understood what I've delivered. This is what we can deliver. And it, that, mm. that's actually, again, it's not just being customer focused and it's being driven by the customer to get the last mile of what, what they will do to actually pay you for the service that you are providing to them. Mm. I, I talk about placing the no, and I think that it is something that, we you've got to develop confidence in because we kind of I know when I first you know I worked in a, a BDM slash product role you I'm like I don't want to bother them and they know what it is so I guess if they want to order they're going to come back and and do that and the reality is is that checking in to work out where they're up to you know it a actually brings some sales out of the woodwork because it can be it can be as simple as oh yeah totally. No, we're ordering this. We've already decided. I just haven't done it yet. They haven't talked to you for three months, right? And then now you know, oh, okay, yeah, they're about to place an order. Or it could be that, you know, they had a question or got put off by something, never got around to asking it, and you can still get that sale. But the no is just as important to understand why, as you just said. And I think that we want to, we feel like, obviously you can, people, you can be way too pushy in terms of how you chase that refer to you know a lot of unsolicited things on LinkedIn I love like okay this is my third and final time if I don't hear from you now I'm not going to message you again you're like thank god <laughs> 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 exactly 
And then often they still do messaging in anyway. I just don't get that. That's a whole different. That's a different podcast. But with the reason, actually, kind of getting them to a decision point so that you understand that you know what the barriers are. Are they surmountable? Is that feedback that you really need to take? And not chasing that, not coming back to them, is it's pretty wimpy, right? Like it, it's kind of then you, you kind of slink away, like oh, okay, I guess we didn't want this. That sometimes in itself, having that conversation about the objection might mean you may not get that sale. But I've had that happen where you know I haven't got that, but then that person's actually referred someone else, yep. and because you took the time to talk about it, even, oh, uh, pricing is a completely different conversation, and it's one that would be good to kind of to have. But I, I think that is a barrier sometimes as well. Is you don't you don't know what to charge when you start you've got to kind of start somewhere and i think that's where that real everything is learning until you get to a point of knowing yes this is how this works this is what people will pay we're confident in this it's learning you got to be prepared to throw stuff out there i look back now at some of the initial things that we charged you know with when we weren't even really a bus it was just kind of like a wheel right but you know and it's like <laughs> and um you know, we're charging <laughs> um by the way we don't actually have a bus size it's a metaphor the the you know i look back now and i'm like wow we are charging significantly more for some of those things but it's because we've demonstrated the value of that and it's you know that that thing of just being confident to kind of start somewhere there is a whole separate podcast that we can probably do on pricing uh one of the yeah. really interesting things is when you're doing needs-based selling and you're engaging your you're sitting there with the customer, you're actually asking them what it is, what are we solving, what is the value, what, you know, how much would we save if we do this? And what's really interesting is that actually can guide you more than you putting a price out there to say this is $40,000 and people go, stick a shot, $40,000, wow. If they've just told you that, oh, yeah, you would save us $200,000 if you did this, you can sit there and go, well, I want to charge you $50,000 for that. And I'm going to be giving you four times value. And they're probably going to sit there and just go, that's a great trade. We'll take that every day. It, it all comes back to, to positioning yourself and be willing to have the conversation. I, I, one call I did with a somebody was a sales call, but they were um, new to sales. And we were getting to the end of the call. It has been a good call. It was a bit of a discovery call. Um, but then... I were willing to wrap it up, and I just said, "Look, let me just let me just jump in here and and ask some questions. You know, when do you need to make a decision? By who's in your decision making process? Have you got a budget? What is your budget? What else are you mm-hmm. looking at?" I I asked all really probing questions, and and the person at the other end, because we'd actually spent a bit of time needs based, then developing a rapport and developing trust, they answered every one of those questions, and we were able to mm-hmm. use all of that in in how we positioned and and how we ended up going about and ultimately winning that deal was to work backwards and we basically then presented that and said is this the timeline that you need to start working on because this means that you need to make a decision in the next three weeks what do you need from us to make a decision and they turned around and they said oh shit you're right that time is really tight here is what we need and we actually did a workshop on defining what they needed that we knew that we could actually frame in our way so they then sent that off to our competitors, but because we'd actually framed it, we knew how to answer it. We had the data in for them to make a decision. The other guys were going, mm. oh, we don't understand this or we're challenging you on this and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the three weeks, they just went, actually, we're having these horrible discussions with 
these challenger sales organizations telling us that they know better, yet these guys have actually uh, listened to us, understood it, met our requirements. So we, we won the deal ultimately by, it was supposed to be a competitive tender, but you know, they competed themselves out of the market. So um, it just gives you an idea, like you know, don't, don't be afraid to ask any question in the sales process because most cases people, what's the worst they can say? They can say, oh yeah, I can't give you that information or I don't know, or I'm not comfortable giving you that information. But if you ask it, the only thing that's, that, that you're missing out on is, is them saying no, they could give you the information, but more importantly, they will understand that you're customer focused, that you're building trust, that you're trying to understand as much about their context as possible. Mm. Look, we can talk forever and we definitely need to have another conversation. But I, I have gotten so much out of this and I hope our listeners have too. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Scotty. Always a pleasure and it was a huge amount of fun. You can find Andrew Sharp, that's Sharp with an E, on LinkedIn if you want to find out more about his work. And that's it for the Bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. Even better, share this show with a friend or anyone who will listen, even if you don't like them. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch, and we're working on our... We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. And we're working on our social media presence. But for now, you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the Bootstrap post there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mix by Rob Clark. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mix by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch. Swivel.